0: As we gather today, Lord, we pray for our nation. And Lord, while we see so much turmoil, we see so much lawlessness, we see so much chaos, we see anarchy, Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are sovereign and you are in control and none of this is taking you by surprise and nothing will thwart your plans. You are with your people in the darkest and deepest valleys, in the fiercest storms of life, and we take refuge in you, O God. Thank you for being a God who has loved us and called us into your marvelous light. We pray for many in our nation who do not know you to also be drawn by your sovereign grace into your marvelous light. We pray for the local mayors who have to make decisions. We pray for our governor who has to make decisions. We pray for our president who has to make decisions. We pray for our Supreme Court justices and our senators and our congressmen. Father, there are too many for us to name, but you know them all. And we ask, Lord, first for their salvation. We pray that for those in in government who do not know you, that you... By your sovereign grace that overcomes our resistance, that you would draw these men and women to you, to faith in Christ, and that they would have a desire in the depths of their hearts to love you and to serve you and to rule in a way that honors you. We pray, Lord, not only for their salvation, but for their wisdom, that they would govern justly, that they would protect those who are. In distress, those who are oppressed, those who um, are not being treated fairly, those who are downcast, we pray that they would govern wisely, Lord. And we pray that as we gather today, that you would fill us with your wisdom as well. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that your word does in it, uh, does in us, in your people. Thank you for the fact that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may understand it and apply it, live by it, and love it. So teach us today, O Lord, to walk in your ways. Teach us to turn to Christ always. Teach us to walk with him. Teach us to repeatedly and continually Draw life from him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39 today. Does anybody need a Bible? If you need a Bible, just put a hand outside of your car and we'll make sure you get one. Okay. So we're going to be in John chapter 7 verses 37 to 39 today as we continue our study of John's gospel. Water is a precious resource. It's a it's a crucial resource uh, that we cannot go without. And that's a really easy statement to substantiate with, uh, with evidence because all you need to do is try to go without it, and the case is made by itself. And of course, we all recognize that it is impossible to go without water for long. Uh, the average person can go without food for somewhere between probably three and four weeks before dying of starvation, but the average person can't go anywhere near that long without water in fact the average person will die of dehydration after only three or four days without water and that is uh, going to be much more quickly if the temperatures are high and so they're sweating profusely and loo- losing bodily fluids more quickly but if you look at the geography of the world uh, where, where towns and cities have been ba- built throughout history they are almost always by a river Jerusalem would be a rare exception to that, and there are a few rare exceptions, but Jerusalem was able, even in the ancient world, to rely on underground spring water. But the fact is that apart from oxygen, water is arguably the single most important resource in the world when it comes to sustaining our physical existence. We could not and we would not exist if we did not have continual access To fresh, clean, drinkable water. Now, in the days of Jesus, there were two great seas located in uh, the vicinity of ancient Israel. In the region of Galilee, you had the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent so much of his ministry. He performed So many miracles, a very high percentage of his miracles were performed either on the Sea of Galilee or in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. And for that reason, uh, those of us who, who read the Bible are very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Now the Jordan River flows out of the south end of the Sea of Galilee and flows eventually into what is known as the Dead Sea, which is a much, much, much bigger body of water than the Sea of Galilee. But we're never told of Jesus going to the Dead Sea, even though uh, the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is located, borders the Dead Sea. Because unlike the Sea of Galilee, where fish could be caught and, and life could be sustained, the Dead Sea has no fish. It has no life. It is a stagnant, dead body of water that is surrounded by by desert land. Now, given that these two bodies of water—the the Sea of Galilee and and then down to the south, the Dead Sea—given that these two bodies of water are connected, you might wonder why one is filled with life and the other is filled with death, as you would expect from a body of water called the Dead Sea, I suppose. And the reason is actually pretty simple. The the main reason is that the Sea of Galilee has water not only flowing into it, but it also has outlets. It also has sources of water flowing out of it. But the Dead Sea, on the other hand, receives water, but it does not have any major water outlets flowing out of it. This gives us a deeper perspective of what Jesus was saying when he said to the woman at the, the Samaritan woman at the well back in chapter 4, when he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So today we're going to see Jesus give what is probably his most well-known invitation to receive living water from him. And we'll understand what this metaphor means and why it's so appropriate when applied to Jesus and the life that is found exclusively in him. John chapter 7 has been a chapter that, uh, up until this point, has helped us to see and helped us to understand the, the rebellious uh, unbelief of man. His brothers, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, his brothers didn't believe. Or they, they hated him, right? They wanted him dead. They wanted him to to go to the Feast of Booths publicly and get himself killed, knowing that the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill him. And as Jesus went to the Feast of Booths privately, after his brothers went, we saw that the Jewish leaders didn't believe in him either. Uh, They wanted to be the ones to kill him. They wanted to be the ones to murder him. And of course, that time would come, but not at this feast. Uh, Then he speaks at the Feast of Booths. And those who had traveled to Jerusalem for the festival, they also didn't believe. They they believed and said that he was possessed by demons. It's blasphemy. And finally, while some of the citizens of Jerusalem were granted faith to believe, the overwhelming majority of them did not believe either. There's so much disbelief. From people of all walks of life, from all the social strata,ses all the demographics, there is so much disbelief. And when we consider these things that we've seen in John chapter 7 so far, it shouldn't be surprising to us that the vast majority of the world around us today doesn't believe either. And what we've seen is that they don't believe, ultimately, for, for the same basic reasons that people here in John chapter 7, in Jesus' day, didn't believe. Ultimately, it boiled down to pride. It boiled down to, to sin. It, it boiled down to the, to the fact that people, by nature, hate the light, and they love the darkness. They love sin, and thus they hate righteousness. And yet here was Jesus at the feast of booths shining like a bright light in their presence and they could not silence him and they could not seize him. They could not do anything to stop him when he did not want to be stopped. Why not? That's a question we might want to ask. Why couldn't they stop him or seize him or silence him? And the answer is found in the text that we looked at last week. The answer is because there were sheep in Jerusalem who were being called by the good shepherd. And those sheep heard their shepherd's voice and they believed, they followed him. That's why the people who wanted to stop and silence and seize Jesus were unable because when he wants to speak, when he calls out to his sheep, he cannot be stopped. His plans cannot be thwarted. And thus those who were filled with unbelief and and hatred and rebellion toward God could not extinguish the light. All they could do was listen. And this was certainly a picture of God's sovereign grace in election, in salvation. God has ordained the salvation of his elect and he has ordained not only the end that being their salvation but he has ordained the means to the end that it would be by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and he has ordained that faith would come by hearing by hearing God had ordained that some of the citizens of Jerusalem would savingly believe in Jesus on that day, and thus God's sovereignty in salvation, in election, was put on full display for all to see, for us to see. But as we have noted throughout this study, God's sovereignty in salvation does not nullify man's responsibility to believe. See, there's a tension between those two ideas. They, they seem incompatible with one another, and yet we have to understand that there's, just a, there's a mystery between those two things that we can't fully wrap our minds around. But what we do know and what we've seen over and over again in this, this gospel is that these two things, God's sovereignty and election... And man's responsibility to believe, these things are often put side by side so that we can never come to the conclusion justly that one nullifies the other. And so thus it's not too surprising that in the passage we come to today, fresh off a passage in which we see God's sovereignty in election uh, is put on, has been put on undeniable display, that we now come to see man's responsibility to Repent and believe savingly in Christ. So, the point of the passage that we come to today, John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, is that it is only natural for us when we realize how greatly God has blessed us to desire to bless others. Let me say that again. It is only natural for us when we realize how greatly God has blessed us to desire to bless others. Now, as we consider the events that have transpired uh, transpired at this particular feast that Jesus was at, we should see that it sets the stage for actually the next two or so chapters. It provides kind of a a theological framework and a setting that helps us to, to understand the events that take place between here and probably the first half of chapter 10. So it's very important that we remember and understand the events that take place in the passage that we come to today on the final day of the Feast of Booths. So, our passage today is John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll talk about it. John writes, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this first verse, verse 37, is just packed. It's just loaded with irony, but it's also loaded with so much grace. We've seen the, the, the disbelief, the rebellion of the masses, instead of hardening their hearts toward Jesus, these people should have been the ones crying out to him for mercy. These people should have been pleading with him for grace, for forgiveness, for, for the strength and, and resolve to, to believe in the conviction, to trade everything that they had in order to receive Jesus. But rather than them crying out to him, as they should have, he cries out to them. He cries out to the people who had rejected him. He cries out to the people who had refused to believe in him, who had hated him, who he knew would eventually be the ones to have their way with him and to murder him. He knew all these things about them. He had no reason, no obligation to cry out to them and to plead with them, to come to him and to receive salvation. But the fact that he had no such obligation forces us to see the glory of God's grace on display in the words and in the heartfelt desire of Jesus that sinners would come to him and receive salvation, receive life in him. Just as he had no obligation to cry out to these people, I hope we all understand that Jesus had no obligation to call you or me either. You and I, by nature, are no different from these people that we've seen throughout chapter 7 who, by nature, don't believe, who refuse to believe. Because by nature, we're just as bad as they are. We are just as sinful as they are. We are just as evil as they are by nature, were just as rebellious and God-hating as these people are. Christ had no obligation to call us or to redeem us, and yet he did, didn't he? We didn't come to him on our own. No, John chapter 6 verse 44 makes that very clear for us, doesn't it? John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one goes to Christ on their own. They must be drawn by the Father. So we did not come to him on our own. By grace, he overcame our resistance. By grace, he overcame our rebellion toward him. And since it's entirely his doing, and entirely of grace, we have nothing to boast in. We we have no right to say these people are worse than we are. We have no right to look down our proverbial noses at these people. Rather, what we must see is that were it not for God's grace, we'd be numbered among them. And so this takes place when? When does Jesus do this? John tells us he does it on the last day of the festival. Now, Remember that it would end, on, uh, end with a Sabbath, uh, but this didn't actually fall on the last day of the week as the Jewish Sabbath did. Rather, it fell on the day after the Jewish Sabbath did. It fell on the first day of the week, which is our Sunday. Sunday, of course, has so much to do with the theme of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in raising Christ from the grave occurred on what day? On Sunday. On Sunday. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost happened on what day? On Sunday. So now, you, now we've seen two of the three primary feasts, Passover and Pentecost, connected very intricately, very intimately to the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to see here is that Jesus is also referring to the Holy Spirit here on the last day of the Feast of Booths on Sunday. Now, if you've ever wondered why Christians meet for worship on Sundays rather than on uh, Saturdays, which is the Jewish Sabbath, uh, this helps us to understand, understanding uh, the, what the what the relation of the Holy Spirit is to Sunday. Not only do we see the example of meeting on Sundays rather than on Saturdays uh, in the early church, um, but from a theological angle, the hope of The Old Testament feasts and festivals is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ, which happened on a Sunday. And the beginning of the age in which the Holy Spirit is given to all who are in Christ started on a Sunday. On the eighth day, then, of this great festival... The people would come and they would, they would tear down their booths, their, their little tents that they would stay in throughout the week and a day, and they would spend the final day, this, this special Sabbath day, singing psalms and presenting offerings by fire unto the Lord as instructed in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 36. And so it's during this time, this special day, that Jesus cries out before the people, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Now, while this is not one of the I am sayings of Jesus, it is nevertheless Jesus claiming to be God. It's a claim to be the spring of salvation from which peace with God and joy are drawn. Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 says, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Christ himself is that spring this is an invitation that is open to all, even to this very day. If you are thirsty, come to Christ. You must go to Christ. Now let's be very clear that this is speaking on a spiritual level rather than on a physical level. He's not talking about physical thirst, but physical thirst gives us a vivid illustration of our desperate, desperate need to come to Christ and to believe in him savingly. If you've ever been dehydrated before, you know that it is one of the worst feelings in the world. It is perhaps one of the worst feelings imaginable. It will make your mouth hurt uh, and your mouth becomes very dry and your tongue becomes swollen. It will make your body feel absolutely powerless to even move. To even walk. It's not like being hungry. If you're hungry, you can still function very well. You can persevere through hunger fairly easily if you have to. But to have a thirst, to be dehydrated, and to have a deep, deep thirst is something that demands immediate, immediate action on the behalf of the one who thirsts. Charles Spurgeon notes, quote, this is a conscious need, conscious to a painful degree, a salutary warning that something very important is wanted, end quote. So the person who's thirsty but doesn't know how to alleviate their thirst is going to suffer incredibly, and the longer they wait to satisfy their thirst, the more unbearable their suffering will become. And so, because it is so unbearable, the person is moved to act immediately upon recognizing that they have a thirst. But Jesus is speaking of a thirst within the soul. A thirst within the depths of a person. Now, thirst in the soul means to have a longing for relief from the burden of sin, from the burden of, of guilt and shame. A thirst in the soul means to have a deep, deep craving for peace with God and relief of your conscience. A thirst in the soul means to have a desperate desire to be cleansed of sin, to be forgiven by God and to be loved by God rather than being his enemy and being under his holy and righteous wrath. Friends, have you thirsted in this way? Have you thirsted in this way uh, uh, even today maybe have you have you thirsted like this if you desire these things if you've ever felt the desire for these things if you become consciously aware of it friend this invitation is for you it's for you it's for me even today This desire for peace with God, this desire to be cleansed of sin, this desire to be freed from bondage to sin and to be loved by God, freed from His righteous anger, this desire is only satisfied by coming to Christ. By coming to Christ and by believing in Him savingly. That's what it means to come to Christ is to believe in Him. See, if a person is physically thirsty, they will eventually reach the point where they would trade anything, anything that they have for a drink of water. And if a person acknowledges, realizes that they are spiritually thirsty, they will also be willing to trade anything and everything that this world has to give in order to receive Christ. Think about the response of the masses, the thousands of people who came to Christ, who believed in Christ savingly on Pentecost? What was their response to Peter's preaching? What did they say? They were pierced to the heart. That's what it means to be thirsty in a spiritual sense. What about the Philippian jailer? Think about him. We're told that trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's what it looks like. That's what it means to be thirsty in a spiritual sense. And friends, to this day, and every day until Christ returns, this is what the Christian church offers to the world. We do not offer a self-help program. We do not offer a cheerleading squad that gives people a pat on the back to just keep going in their sin. We do not offer them a means of just feeling good and happy about themselves and their lives. We do not offer a partnership to the world of any sort. No, we offer the world the one remedy for their spiritual thirst, which is believing in Jesus Christ. If anyone is thirsty... Let them come and drink and find satisfying relief and sustenance for their souls. And of course, Jesus is using a figure of speech to tell us that we must believe in him. That's what he says in verse 38. That's what it means to come to him. We don't come to him physically. We come to him spiritually. We don't come to him with our feet, right? We come to him with our faith. But a person will not come if they don't even realize that they are thirsty to begin with. See, the beginning of the Christian journey, the beginning of the Christian life is not taking out fire insurance on your soul just in case and then living your life as if God hasn't given us any rules or regulations or standards to live by. No, And it's not simply repeating a prayer or walking up an aisle at the end of a church service. No, the beginning of the Christian journey, the beginning of the Christian faith is coming to the point where by the conviction of the Holy Spirit who has been working within us, we are made consciously aware of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And we're aware of the futility and the worthlessness of everything that this world has to offer in terms of filling our most basic fundamental needs. Until we know that we are lost, we won't desire to be saved. And until we know that we thirst, we will not realize how we have tried to satisfy the longings in our souls and in our hearts with all the wrong things. See, man recognizes that he, he desires things, that there's, there's kind of a void, an emptiness in him. He has a thirst but he thirsts for the things of the world. He thirsts for money. He he thirsts for power. He thirsts for the desires and the pleasures of the flesh. He thirsts maybe for fame. He thirsts for self-indulgence. But here Christ has declared for us implicitly that the water that the world offers you will not remedy your thirst. Drink from the world and you will thirst again. It might even cause you to be more thirsty than before. But if you drink from this fountain of life by believing in Christ, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. How blessed and how content and how satisfied is the man who can say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water brooks, So my soul pants for you, O God. Jesus invites all. He invites you to come to Him. He invites all to come to Him, believing not that you are a thirsty sinner, but believing that there is, or not only that you are a thirsty sinner, but also believing that there is no other remedy that God has provided for us for this thirst. There's no other Savior. There's no other mediator who stands between God and man. There's only one. And you must come to him on his terms, not on yours. And not only for the sake of receiving salvation, redemption, grace, peace, joy, yes, all these things, but also for the sake of surrendering your life to him. In other words, you cannot come to him only as a savior. You must also come to him as lord as the one who has authority over your life forsaking your own really imaginary sense of self-autonomy and authority jesus is the one who has the authority to determine what is right or wrong good or evil not you not me not anybody god alone he sets the standard for what is good And anything that falls outside of that standard is necessarily evil. Evil. If you will come to him, come to Christ as you are, not as you think you should be, but just as you are, he offers this promise to you. From your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John, who spoke this, who, who wrote this, wants to make sure that we understand that when Jesus said this, he was speaking spiritually. He wasn't talking physically. He wasn't talking about a physical river literally flowing out of your, uh, your, your being, uh, of living water flowing from your being. He was talking about the Holy Spirit who would be given after Jesus was glorified. And of course, this speaks of Jesus' work on Calvary, on the cross, his perfect substitutionary death on behalf of all who believe in him savingly. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time on Passover week, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When Judas Iscariot, went to betray Jesus. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And he said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father saying, now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the Spirit would come after Jesus was glorified and Jesus was glorified On the cross. Jesus' glory was publicly displayed on Calvary. And it is out of that work, that substitutionary work, that atoning work on behalf of his people, it's out of that work that he sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is why, by the way, if you've ever wondered what the significance of the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side when he had died and the centurion pierced his side, it's it's physically what happened, but it also has very deep spiritual significance and symbolism. The blood represents the sacrifice for sin that is found in Christ alone, and the water is the sign of the Holy Spirit who was sent because Jesus had gone away. When a person truly comes to saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within that person. And it's for this reason that if a person comes to Christ believing in him savingly, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now we've already seen the importance of water and how the Sea of Galilee produced life because it both received and gave water to the Jordan River as, as living water produces life and physical sustenance, the Holy Spirit continually flows in the life of the Christian, producing good fruit and spiritual sustenance. Now, as you hear this, friends, as you hear this, you might be considering your life, and it's possible that you are feeling like your life sure doesn't feel like you have streams of living water coming from your life. Maybe your life today feels more like a dry creek bed that gets just an occasional trickle every now and then rather than a flowing river of living water and i believe that the reason for that the answer to that is found at least in part in understanding that a water that produces life cannot be stagnant it cannot be stagnant how easy is it for us to become stagnant i'll tell you this that is the number one reason why I get concerned about people who aren't coming to church or who aren't going to church somewhere. It's because I can guarantee that they are stagnant. We need the gathering, the assembly of the saints for that, to keep things from becoming stagnant. A person who does not go to church or who maybe just goes to church Five or six times a year, I guarantee you, they are not feeling like there's a river of flowing, living water flowing out of their life. It's stagnant. It's stagnant. And there are two implications of this promise that Jesus gives. Number one, that you will receive the blessings of God. That's first of all. But secondly, there's the implication that you will, in turn, be a blessing unto others. J.C. Ryle notes of these words spoken by Christ. Quote, they have a double application. They teach for one thing, that all who come to Christ by faith shall find in him abundant satisfaction. They teach for another thing, that believers shall not only have enough for the needs of their own souls, but shall also become fountains of blessing to others. End quote. See, it's only natural for us when we realize how greatly God has blessed us that we would also desire to bless others. And that's not to say that we ourselves become the source of living water. No, we're the conduit in the sense that we become the means, kind of the go-between, the means that God uses to bless others around us. First, his children, your church family, other Christians, and secondly, the world around us. But he does this, he distributes blessings through his people, What do you suppose happens if a person refuses to participate in this? I'll just say it's very easy for them to become like the Dead Sea, which has an inlet, but it does not have an outlet, and thus nothing can live in it. In other words, if your life feels like the Dead Sea, or like an occasional trickle of water on a dry creek bed, rather than feeling like a flowing river of living water, could it be that you're stagnant? Because you feel like you don't bless others. Because God's purpose for his people is not only to receive the blessings of God, but to distribute the blessings of God as well. And often, that means opening your mouth, especially when we're talking about distributing your blessings in the world, often that is going to require opening your mouth and sharing the gospel and talking about your faith. It means telling others about the hope that you have, the faith that you have in Christ. But not just talking the talk in front of others, but also walking the walk. It's not only speech by which these blessings are delivered, but it's also by action. Donald Gray, Barnhouse, uh, B- Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote that when people know that you're a Christian, when the unbelieving world knows that you're a Christian, which will happen, by the way, uh, by being open and vocal about your faith, and it won't happen any other way. If people don't know you're a Christian, they're not going to know you're a Christian if you're not talking about it. He says this, quote, people will instinctively come to you for help. In your school, in your office, in your hospital, you should so live for Christ that others will approach you in their times of trouble and then you can flow Christ to them, end quote. God has given you opportunities to bless others, hasn't he? If you have kids, you you have more opportunities to to bless your kids than you probably realize. Uh, He's given you a church, a church family where you can bless others, you can serve others, you can participate, you can encourage, you can pray for others. He's directed your path to intersect with the people, the paths of people who need help. Maybe he's given you skills, particular skills to help, or maybe he's given you finances to help, but the the most important thing that God has given you is simply the desire to bless others. That's the greatest thing that he can give us in terms of being a conduit for his blessings is that he would actually give us the desire to bless others. Do you desire that? Do you desire to bless others? Have you experienced how deeply fulfilling that is? How rewarding that is? Open the outlets that God has carved into your life. Go to Him in prayer. Ask Him for opportunities to be a spring of blessing to those around you. And then prayerfully seek out those opportunities. They are abundant. They are absolutely everywhere. And blessing others is often far, far more simple than we try to make it. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be very, very simple. If you have felt like the Dead Sea, if you have been spiritually stagnant and not blessing others, Consider the words of Ezekiel, who wrote of a fountain of living water which, flew, which flowed out of God's temple as a wide and mighty river, bringing life even to the Dead Sea, bringing life everywhere it goes. Ezekiel writes this in Ezekiel chapter 47. He says, it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be many fish for those... Waters go there, and others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to Englaim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Very many by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is talking about what would happen today. In the ministry of the Holy Spirit, working in his people, that everywhere this river goes, there will be life. Because everywhere you go, you have life within yourself. The flowing water is the Holy Spirit. Where does he go? He goes everywhere you go. And God's design is that life would be abundant wherever he goes. You see, the inclination of man, by nature, is to hoard and to keep things for himself, to receive and and to keep as much as he possibly can. Don't get me wrong, even an atheist is willing to give to others, but man, by nature, asks this question, How much do I have to give? The Christian, on the other hand, must learn to approach this much differently. Rather than asking, How much do I have to give? We must ask, How much am I able to give? How much am I able to give? How much can I give? And when we consider the grace that God has given to us, the abundant life, the abundant grace, the abundant peace that God has given to us, we can be sure that He didn't ask, How much do I have to give? Because He didn't have to give us anything, it's all grace. But, He gave us something. He gave us His Son, the perfect, sinless sacrifice who bore the sins of all who will come to Him, all who will believe in Him. He gave us His Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to those who savingly believe in Christ. When we consider all that God has given us, all that He has blessed us with, all the uncountable, innumerable, Insurmountable blessings that he has lavishly poured out on us, and we when we consider what Peter says that we 've been made partakers of the divine nature, in other words, that the very nature of God is ours, when we consider all these things, then it is only natural that we would not give as the world gives, we would not love as the world loves, we will not do as the world does, and we will not bless as the world blesses, if such a term can even rightfully be applied to the world. No, rather than giving and blessing the way that the world does, we will give and bless the way God does, by grace, nothing in it for ourselves, purely grace. Now, to be clear, I I understand that this is a concept that some of those, uh, you know, Preachers, you might see on TV, false teachers might use to increase giving in their church. And while there can certainly be a, a, an application to giving financially to the church, I suppose, here in this passage, uh, that is one of, of, of Many, 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 many applications. There are innumerable ways that you and I can bless others. And while finances can be one of those ways of blessing others, the purest and the greatest way that we can bless the world around us is simply to share the gospel. To share the gospel. Now when you do that, you have to understand, when you bless others, Even in your church, when you're serving in your church and blessing others in your church, you won't know the full extent that you have blessed others on this side of heaven. But the day is coming. We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The day is coming when all that you and I have done to serve Christ and to bless others purely for the glory of Christ will be fully revealed. Some of those things will have been done by word, some by deed. Some of those things will have been through giving financially, some through hard labor. Some will have been given directly, some indirectly. There will almost undoubtedly be ways that you have blessed others throughout your life that you would never have even known about had Christ one day not revealed those things to you on that final day. The point is, friends, The point is that Christ's blessings are designed not only to flow to you, but also to flow through you. It starts with us recognizing our thirst. It starts with us realizing that Christ is the only way to receive refreshment, to to, to satisfy our thirst. And that leads to us being blessed, which leads to our desire to bless others, which leads to God's purposes throughout the world being fulfilled. Do you know his blessings? Have you come to him already to alleviate your thirst? If you haven't, let me just say this. He stands pleading with sinners even today, wherever and whenever the gospel is being shared with others. So what is our response to these words from our Lord. It's to examine ourselves. It's to examine ourselves. Does your life look like rivers of living water flowing from your innermost being? If not, then come to Christ. Find refreshment for your soul. Drink freely and drink abundantly. As Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Count your blessings and pray for opportunities to bless others, knowing that this is the way that God has designed it to work and that he will be faithful to grant opportunities so that from your innermost being, rivers of living water would flow first to his people and second to the thirsty world around us. All, all for the glory of Christ who is faithful to call his sheep whenever the gospel is preached. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fount of life that is within us because of Christ's work on Calvary. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to guide us, to help us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to teach us to grow more like Christ. Thank you for the many, many blessings, every heavenly blessing your word tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that have been lavishly poured out on us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us not only the conviction to share the gospel with others, to be a blessing to others around us, but we pray for the opportunities to do so. So to that end, Lord, we pray for wisdom and courage and grace that our lives would be rivers of living water flowing to